Let me read it for us. James 1. James, a, uh, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. I have a shock for you. It's a good thing you're sitting down right now. The Christian life is not easy. The corollary to this is the point that not everybody who calls themselves a Christian is. Going to Taco Bell doesn't make you a taco. (laughs) Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Any more than hanging around with Jesus during his lifetime made you a disciple. There were lots of those who followed Jesus in some sense. There were lots of those who believed in Jesus in some sense, but who were not saved, who had no saving faith. Let me tell you what I mean by this. In Matthew 7, towards the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he tells the crowd gathered there that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There is such a thing as so-called faith that doesn't save, and that's precisely because it's so-called. So-called by whom? Well, the person who has that kind of faith, of course. That kind of faith is very easy to have. The kind of faith that just requires you to hang around church or to hang around Jesus without having a transformed life, that's a very superficial faith that is skin deep. It is a very easy faith to have. It's easy to possess. It costs nothing, and it demands even less from you. You remember when the man's friends bored the hole in the roof and lowered him down in front of Jesus, the lame man on his mat. And Jesus said, uh, because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees wagged their fingers and wagged their tongues and they were upset about this. And Jesus asked the Pharisees a question. Which is easier to say to the man, stand up and walk or your sins are forgiven? It's a very tricky question, isn't it? Have you ever tried to answer it? (laughs) I mean, in a sense, they're both equally easy to say. They're the same number of syllables. They require the same number of You know, calories are expense saying both sentences. But one is non-falsifiable. You can tell the person your sins are forgiven and he will not know if you're speaking the truth in this life. He won't know. Jesus, of course, demonstrates that he has the authority to do both by forgive sins and heal the man. The Pharisees claimed the authority to dispense forgivenesses of of sins, but they couldn't heal anyone. Jesus heals the man and then declares, of course, his sins are forgiven. In that sense, it's very easy to call yourself a Christian and privately identify yourself with the Messiah and go right on living the very same lame life you were living before. But know that that stagnated kind of life is not Christianity. It simply isn't. The superficial saving faith, in quotes, of those who just hang around church without a a heartfelt commitment to Christ, that is not the kind of message that Jesus preached. It's not the life that he modeled. It's not what he called his disciples to emulate. But listen, it is a very Jewish form of religion. That was what the kind of Judaism of Jesus' lifetime was. The people there would identify themselves with certain teachers or certain schools of thought, and they would be disciples or followers of a leader without changing a whole lot about their life. And this is what's going on when the Jewish leaders gather themselves around Jesus to listen to his teaching, to kind of give him an audience, to hear what he has to say. 
They listened to Jesus as if he were a form of entertainment. And frankly, a form of entertainment more close at hand than John the Baptist was. I mean, they liked going to hear John the Baptist preach, even though he railed against them. But they liked, they liked, they liked that. What a way to spend a day. It's just he was so far out there. You had to walk so far to get to him. It'd take all day to get out there. Whereas Jesus, he's right along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. What a time saver. And so they'd go to him as if he were entertainment with no desire to change their life, just to hear and have their ears tickled. And so Jesus gathers them around. This is towards the beginning of his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount. He gives his most famous sermon and he entirely blows that kind of thinking out of the water. He confronted the crowd he confronted the Jewish academics who were there, the Pharisaical leaders, the wavering masses, and he blasted them and blasted them and blasted them. He told them in that sermon that they are wrong about so much. They had developed man-made commandments to prop up their sense of religion while shielding them from the conviction of Yahweh, the covenant-making God who is now standing before them in the flesh. And underneath the Pharisees' wrong view of religion was this triaged view of mankind. They had separated the head from the heart from the hands, and they taught that what you acted on, what you did with your hands and with your feet was more important than what you thought, of course, in your head or what your motivations were, which were, you know, separate entirely from what you loved in your heart. So, of course, it's okay to look at someone with lust just as long as you don't act on it. It's okay to give in such a way that draws attention to yourself. After all, you're giving. And this bifurcated concept of the affections from the intellect results in a life that is spiritually shallow and yet filled with action, filled with deeds. The result was that the Pharisees taught that lust was kosher as long as you didn't act on it, that meekness was weakness, that poverty was a curse, and that the power to render religious Edicts was the pinnacle of existence. And they got away with it so long as the Messiah never showed up. And then, of course, everything changes when Jesus does. And they're gathered together on the Sea of Galilee, and he, as I said, destroys that school of thinking. I mean, when you read the Sermon on the Mount through that lens, it's impossible to exaggerate how worldview altering, how paradigm shifting the Sermon on the Mount really was. I mean, it is upending the religious order of the Pharisees. It is upending the whole Jewish approach to worshiping God. He turns it on its head. He grabs it by the ankles and shakes it and throws it away. He esteems brokenness, which the Pharisees disdained. He declares that moral poverty is the way to prosperity. He, de he declares that meekness is strength, that pride is contemptible and condemned by God. In other words, the Pharisees' worldview accept the opposite. And he even ends by telling those who listen to the Pharisees and are naive enough to believe their teaching is like the person who builds his house on sand and is surprised when it gets washed away. I mean, those are fighting words. <laughs> you want to live like the Pharisees tell you to live? and somehow be pleasing to God, then you're going to end up cutting off your hands and gouging out your eyes. I mean, it is impossible to overstate how confrontive the Sermon on the Mount was. And in it, towards the end, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now I want you to latch on to that phrase from the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. That phrase, with that phrase, Jesus builds a bridge from the Sermon on the Mount through 2,000 years of church history to today. That phrase builds a bridge from the Sea of Galilee over Jerusalem, over Africa, over the Atlantic Ocean, right to Emmanuel Bible Church. I mean, think about it. When Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, well, just pause right there. Who is saying to him, Lord, Lord? Who at this point? Anybody? Are the people there gathered calling him Lord? Of course not. It'll be years before Peter declares that he's the Messiah. I mean, what is Jesus talking about here? He is fast-forwarding you through time to the church, knowing that there will be a church. There will be people who are gathered around the identity of Jesus Christ as Lord. And that same tendency in the, in the Jewish world, that same synagogue, pharisaical mentality, will be prevalent in the church. There will be those who gather around specific teachers and call themselves disciples of that teacher without letting the gospel of Jesus change their hearts. There will be those that gather around in church, show up every Sunday. This is what they do without having the gospel change their hearts. They will do so many external things with their hands without having the gospel change their hearts. And so the message to the Pharisees is the message to us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is an urgent warning for us. It's an imperative that you need to let register in your mind. True religion is not seen simply at a cognitive level. It's not seen simply at the hand levels in what you do. True religion is seen in the heart. Authentic Christian faith, of course, is rooted in belief. The Christian anthropology connects the head, the heart, the hands. We understand that it starts with faith, what you know about God and you believe. That in turn renews the mind and transforms the heart and gives you a love. Your love is rooted in what you know though. Your your affections for God can never grow beyond your knowledge of him, of course, because you can only love that which you know. But your knowledge is connected to your affections. Your head goes to your heart and saving faith begins in the head and goes to the heart and transforms, renews the heart. And those affections in turn transform your life. They're not disconnected. That's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. And that saving faith changes all of it. And that's where the book of James comes in. The book of James, I think, is the oldest New Testament book, or maybe the second oldest, and it's possible that Matthew is written first and then James, but either Matthew or James is the oldest New Testament book, followed by the other. James, in many ways, is a commentary for the Christian on the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's probably the most effective way of viewing the book of James. It's your one-second book of James summary. The Christian's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. People stumble. Christians often stumble on the Sermon on the Mount, thinking at how much of those ethics apply to the future kingdom versus apply to the Pharisaical Jews, which apply to the church. And I think the way to understand all of that is to see it through the lens of the book of James. Now, I don't know if James received Matthew and, and wrote the book of James in response to seeing the Sermon on the Mount as described in the Gospel of Matthew, or if he was simply there when it was preached, which probably both are true. But he writes this to help you understand this warning. He's writing, of course, in the second part of verse 1, to the 12 tribes. He's writing to Jewish believers, Christians, 
They're Jewish by, by birth, but Christian by faith. And he's writing them this warning to them not to let that Pharisaical external religion, not to let that mindset creep into the new church. It's written, of course, by James, verse, the first word of the book, who's the brother of our Lord. And this is what I want you to see this morning. This is my main point. That the book of James is a warning to you to not confuse hanging out at church, not confuse doing Christian things with authentic saving faith. Don't confuse the two. Do you understand why James is the perfect messenger for that truth? Because it's his biography. That's his life message. He was the brother of our Lord. He grew up around Jesus Christ, but without saving faith. It was only later when he gave his life to the Lord and then everything was different. He's the perfect messenger to deliver this message. Nobody would know these truths better than James. I want to introduce you a little bit to the author here. Before I do that, understand the book of James, it is about exposing heart motives. It's about getting behind. Don't get fooled by what people do on the outside. Go through that. See through that. See into the heart. See what the person loves. And that's where you see saving faith producing fruit. And as I said, nobody would know this better than James. James, of course, is the brother of the Lord Jesus. His younger brother, but probably the oldest of his younger brothers, if that makes sense. And I say this because in Matthew 13, verse 55, you see all of Jesus' brothers listed. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And I underline James there so he stands out to you. He's listed first in that list. Now, the normal way of listing names of people is you usually start with the oldest. If you were to ask me what, who, you know, what my kids' names are, I would start with the oldest kid and go through birth order. And that's the typical Jewish way of doing it, too. I think everybody does it that way. And so you look at this list, it seems likely James is the oldest of Jesus' younger brothers. And I'm going to keep calling him brothers because the scripture calls him uh, a brother, but you understand he's a half-brother because of the, of the virgin birth. So Joseph and Mary would have been the parents of James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, likely in that order. Now, a quick word about the name. In Greek, the name is actually Jacob. And it's, in Hebrew, it's the name is Jacob, too. I mean, everybody would have called him Jacob. It's translated James into English, not in the Old Testament, but only in the New. And I, I wish they were, translations were consistent. I wish they would render Jacob as James in the Old Testament or Jacob as Jacob in the New Testament, but they... This is the world we live in. What are you going to do? <laughs> Jacob is a very common Israelite name, probably the most common name of Jesus' lifetime. Uh, it's translated James, and if you're curious, I'll tell you why. You were curious, weren't you? Why James? Well, Hebrew, it's Jacob, Jacob. Greek becomes Jacobus. Latin becomes Yikimus, I-A-C-O-M-U-S. And Yikimus, if you say it long enough with an English accent, becomes the M in the middle condenses and it becomes Yames or Yames. There you go. There's one more thing you're probably wondering. Why is he called Santiago in Spanish? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Frankly, I'm, I was hoping you would ask that question. Because Iago, remember the Latin pronunciation, he became a saint and so he was San Iago or Santiago. See, now you'll win Jeopardy. Next round. <laughs> Interesting side note here, James and Judas was the other brother, 
two brothers of Jesus that both wrote New Testament epistles, both have had their names changed through church history. Jacob becomes James and Judas becomes Jude. So, and which is obviously why Judas becomes Jude, who wants to be remembered as the named after the traitor. But before we get to those two, remember that these two, Judas and Jacob, grew up with Jesus. They saw his ministry. Galatians 1.19 identifies James as the Lord Jesus' brother. Jude identifies himself in Jude 1 verse 1 as James's brother. As I mentioned, they're both listed in Matthew 13.55. They clearly did not see signs of Jesus' deity as they were growing up, though. It appears that while Jesus was sinless, his glory was veiled as part of his humanity. That as he took on his human nature, we talked about this last week, he, the nature of God, and he added a second nature, his, his humanity, that presented a, a humility, a voluntarily obscuring of the, the, the power of his deity, not a diminishing of his deity, but a voluntarily obscuring of it, that he grew up in this family and he lived a normal life. He, he had a normal relationship with his brothers. Nothing stood out to them about Jesus. There's all those Gnostic stories about, you know, Jesus shooting birds out of the sky and then resurrecting them and all kinds of crazy things like that. I don't think that's true because that would have stood out to the younger brother. <laughs> like, hey, Jesus can resurrect a bird. <laughs> You'd remember that. It doesn't appear that they had those kind of experiences. Maybe it dawned on them like, hey, it's not fair. How come Jesus never gets a spanking? I don't know. <laughs> But when Jesus begins his ministry, you can tell that his brothers are not that impressed, nor is anybody else. Matthew 13, again, verse 55, the crowd is gathered around and Jesus is beginning his ministry and they, the crowd asks, isn't this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. They didn't take offense at him because they didn't like his brothers. They took offense at him because of how normal their family was. He's not the Messiah. We know this guy. He fit in with his brothers. And apparently that's what James and Judas thought too. As Jesus began his public ministry, it certainly surprised his family. His family was with him in John 2 verse 12 when he went to the synagogue uh, for the first time to cleanse the, uh, to the temple for the first time to cleanse the temple. And it appears that they were not pleased with his actions. Now at one point, his family was preaching, or Jesus was preaching in Galilee and his family came to get him. You remember this in Luke 8 verse 20. And Jesus told your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Notice that turn of phrase there. They're outside. Jesus had this massive crowd around him, but his family wasn't part of it. They were not part of the crowd. They were not part of the disciples, and they weren't pleased with what was happening. They were trying to get him to go home. It's as if they thought he was out of his mind. And Jesus responded to the person who said this and said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus was under no illusions about the saving faith or lack thereof with his family. They were on the outside looking in. And the, of course, the, the will of God was to believe in the Son of God. That's the, what the Word of God commanded them to do, and his family wasn't doing it. And this was exasperated over time. By John chapter 7, his brothers were openly mocking him. Remember John 7 is where his brothers say, hey, you do a lot of cool things in secret. Why don't you try them in public for once? John 7 verse 5, John lets you know that they were mocking him expressly because they did not believe in his message. That's John 7 verse 5. And yet, by Acts 1, after the resurrection, all of his brothers 
are with the disciples in the room praying. So something changed between John 7 and Acts 1. They went from skeptics and spectators to believers by Acts 1. So what happened? What brought them to the church in Jerusalem? Well, 1 Corinthians gives us the answer. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 declares that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So when Jesus rose from the grave, he first appeared to his brother James and then to all of his apostles. And that obviously changed everything. This becomes a powerful testimony of the the veracity of the resurrection that those who knew Jesus best saw him crucified, saw his resurrection and believed. For the first time, James went from being a brother to a follower. He went from being a spectator to a disciple. He went from being an observer of Jesus' life, even though a close observer, to being a slave. And that's the language back in James 1.1. James, a slave. It's the translated bondservant in the NAS, but you know this. It's the Greek word doulos. It's a slave. A doulos is somebody who's bought from the slave market. There's a price paid for them. They become property of the new person who owns them. They forfeit their rights. They forfeit their individual identity. They forfeit the ability to hold their own property and to have their own life. They become a slave. That's the word. You've heard me say this a hundred times, but 101 now, it is the most common New Testament word for a Christian. They didn't call themselves Christians or believers or followers. Their phrases, those are phrases they use, but not to the extent that they call themselves doulos, doulois, slaves. Most New Testament books begin with that description, and so does James. He went from being a spectator to being a slave of Jesus. He understood slave, of course, that he was purchased. For the first time, James understands that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he paid a substitutionary death. That's what it means to be a slave, that you were purchased, that James was owned in the marketplace of sin, that Jesus gave his own life to buy him out of sin, to buy him out of slavery, now gives him a new identity, that Jesus chose James not to be his brother, but to be his slave. He purchased him. He owned him. Now he will protect him and care for him, even though he's resurrected and in glory, he still cared for. Notice beyond that, it's the statement about the deity of the Lord Jesus. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, listen, no one can serve two masters, amen? Who said that? James's brother, of course. <laughs> he can't serve two masters. And here James identifies himself as being owned by God and then kurios, is the Greek word that's translated Lord there, kurios. A kurios is somebody who owns slaves, So he's declaring that I'm a slave of God and my Lord is Jesus Christ. In other words, it's the same being here. It's a statement about the deity of Christ. This is James. And this is all true of him at the moment of his conversion, by the way. And if you're a follower of Christ, this is true of you. You're a slave of Jesus. But James' story doesn't end with him becoming a slave. By Acts 12, verse 7, he's sitting with the apostles, exercising leadership over the church in Jerusalem. And as the apostles begin to scatter all over the globe, it was James who stayed. The apostles scattered to the four corners of the earth. They would be martyrs as far away as as India and through Africa and up into Europe. But James stayed. He stayed in Jerusalem. As the disciples and the apostles scattered, James became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Galatians 2.9 calls James a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. And just notice that imagery. A pillar there, it's the image is that everybody else is coming and going, but James is staying. 
he became the pastor of the church that the apostles attended. That would be an interesting calling. <laughs> Imagine preaching with the 12 apostles right there. <laughs> like, ah, can I correct one thing? In Galatians 1.19, Paul expressly calls James an apostle. So when he says, I went to Jerusalem, I didn't see any of the apostles other than James. And notice that in a twist of God's providence, James is the one who authorizes Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Of course, Jesus sent Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, but James is the one who ratified that. So appreciate the dynamic of James's life. A spectator with a front row seat to Jesus with no saving faith then converted, and he becomes blessed with leadership the Lord uses in the church. He becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And through that, he's a very Jewish life here. The church in Jerusalem is obviously going to be Jewish, and yet he cares for the Gentiles by sending Paul to be their apostle. Even beyond that, in Acts 15, one of the most loving things James does for the Gentiles is he gives the verdict at the first church council that the Gentiles do not need to keep the law of Moses. That was the big debate. Gentiles are getting saved. Do they need to now keep the law of Moses? And James says no. That council was led by the apostles, of course, but James is clearly at this point functioning like one of the elders. The pastoral epistles hadn't been written. They didn't call themselves elders yet, but it was an elder-led church with the apostles and James. And James was the one who gave the verdict. And remember when he sent Paul out? He told Paul, go to the Gentiles, but I ask you one thing. Remember the poor, the idea of being the poor back in Jerusalem. James understood that as the Gentile church was strengthened, their resources could come to the Jewish suffering church in Jerusalem. And of course, the church first begins to expand through the dispersion. That's the second part of verse 1. To the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Do you remember how this happened? The, the Israelites were scattered in the exile. They were allowed to return, but over 400 years, many of them hadn't returned, and they've moved around the Roman Empire. As the Roman Empire has, has solidified control over a huge swath of the earth, a lot of the Jews are moving around, setting up Jewish cities and communities all around the Roman Empire. Some of them are not allowed to come back to Jerusalem for various reasons. Others of them elect to stay in the, these Gentile cities, but they keep their Jewish faith and their Jewish religion. They come back for certain feasts, and some of them come back for the Feast of the Booze. This is where they hear the gospel preached because of the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues. They hear the gospel preached in their own language from their own, the area they're from. And lots of them come to faith in Christ, thousands of them. They then return. They don't move to Jerusalem. They return. They go back to the dispersion. And now there's Christians out there. They might be persecuted for being Jews in some places. They're definitely persecuted for being Christians in other places. But they were cared for by James. And that's what he's writing this book for, to care for these Jewish believers who are scattered. And he cares for them by warning them exactly against the same trait that was so evident in Judaism. The thinking that you can go to church or go to the synagogue, that you could hang around a certain teacher or disciple, and that would somehow translate into saving faith. The truth is that's just being a spectator. You have to go from spectator to slave. You have to go from observer to obed, observer to slave. And James writes this book to let them know that. I mean, this book blasts them. There's 50 imperatives in this book. I have a thing in my Bible software that imperatives, it puts flames behind them so I see them. <laughs> 50 times the book of James. It's all over the place. He's telling them boom, 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 boom. 
It's like the Sermon on the Mount given to Christians. But it starts with this most basic assumption that not everybody who's reading this book is a true follower of Christ. And just marvel at that. That there will be people that sit in a church Sunday after Sunday without giving their lives to the Lord. That there would be people who would sit in the synagogue Sabbath after Sabbath without the saving faith that the son of David was coming. That there would be people who think that they are on a right footing with God because they listen to so-and-so on the radio. (laughs) Because their relative did such and such for the church. They have done these things with their hands or their feet. But their heart has never been born again. They've never given their lives to Christ. They've never gone from spectator to slave. Imagine James meeting one of those kind of people and asking that person, are you a Christian? Are you a slave of Jesus? And that person saying, huh, I have done so much for Jesus. You should see, I mean, I am in church every Sunday. Every Sunday. I do this, I do that, I do the other thing. Plus, you should see what my brother does. He's a missionary. I mean, James would need an ice pack from rolling his eyes so hard. He was the brother of our Lord before he was a slave of our Lord. When I first moved into our neighborhood, we lived in a cul-de-sac. The very first time we went to see the house we'd move into before we bought it, we met the neighborhood cat. Lily Cat was her name, and she owned the neighborhood. She sized us up. The house is the for sale sign in front. We're walking through with the realtor, but Lily Cat comes and sizes us up. I think she approved. She liked my girls. We move into the house. It's clear that Lily wants to be our girl's friend. She's always hanging out, but she's like that with all the houses in the cul-de-sac. She makes her rounds. I mean, I think she viewed the cul-de-sac as her domain. She was the queen, just strutting right to the middle of the cul-de-sac. She would eat whatever birds she wanted to eat with, with impunity. She just ruled the place. But she was not our cat. She did not belong to us. She befriended us, and my daughters loved her, but she wasn't ours. She would try to sneak into the house, of course. She knew where the food was kept, and we would throw her back out. What would you do if the cat snuck into your house, right? I mean... I mean, that was just it. If at nightfall came and she was in her house, she had to go outside. I mean, you can't keep somebody else's cat in your house overnight. There's a word for that. It's called stealing <laughs> or catnapping. I don't know. Not catnipping. Catnapping. <laughs> not allowed. She's not ours. If animal control would show up in her cul-de-sac and say, you know, who's caring for this cat? Not us. Not ours. Then one day, our neighbor knocks on our door and asks if we would like the cat. (laughs) Before Deidre and I had a chance to get our story straight, our girls have absconded with said cat, and the rest is history. It became our cat. (laughs) I fear that some of you are spiritual lily cats. (laughs) 
You hang around the church. You purr. You enjoy it here. You're friends with people here. But you don't belong to the Lord. Doesn't matter how long you hang out here, that doesn't make you a Christian. Now, of course, the corollary of this is the church has an important role to play. You know, you find somebody who says they're a Christian but doesn't go to a church, you're allowed to roll your eyes pretty hard at that. But just because of that error, don't make the other error. Don't make the error of thinking that by being in the place, your heart is in the Lord. You have to give your life to Him. He has to be your Lord, your master. You have to become His slave. And that happens through faith through reckoning, through counting your own life loss and the glory of Jesus Christ, your only gain. Lord, we're thankful that you have given us the way to heaven. You've commanded the gates to lift up their heads, to throw up in their arms so the king of glory could come in. We want to follow you. Lord, we want you to bring us into glory with you. You are our savior. We're thankful that James didn't just learn this lesson, but he wrote about it and he gave it to us. I pray there's no one here this morning who is merely a spectator without being a slave. I pray that that exchange would be evident in all of our lives. We're thankful that you are a loving Lord, a gracious master whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. We're thankful that you're a savior. We give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, We'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.